1: I'm Nuria martinez Kiel
0: And I'm Dale Benwalt. You're listening to The Source.
1: Thanks for joining us as we discuss the Oklahomans' most impactful stories with the reporters who wrote them.
0: The nation was rocked with two horrific mass shootings just days apart. A school shooting in Uvalde, Texas, claimed 21 lives, including 19 children. Eight days later, a gunman walked into a Tulsa Medical Clinic and killed four people. This is yet another act of violence upon an American city. This week on the podcast, we speak with the Oklahomans executive editor Ray Rivera, who's covered shootings as both a reporter and editor. He oversaw coverage of the recent attacks in Oklahoma and Texas.
1: Ray thanks for joining us. Um, It's not very often that we have an editor on the podcast so just for those out there who don't see your byline in the paper maybe don't know who you are aren't familiar with you could you just start by telling us what your role is at the Oklahoman and the USA Today Network specifically when it comes to coverage of these shootings?
2: Sure Uh, so like you said I'm the executive editor of the Oklahoman I'm also vice president of news for USA Today Network's Sunbelt region which covers all of uh, Texas, Oklahoma, Colorado, and New Mexico, some 25 daily newspapers and a number of weeklies. Uh, so when Uvalde happened, it was a, it was a, uh, uh, a mass mobilization of, of uh, reporters that we called in from both USA Today and from our nearest newspaper there, which was the Austin American Statesman, who were able to get onto the ground in uh, Uvalde within hours of the shooting. It was about, uh, uh, I think about three hours southeast of Austin. And so they were among the first reporters there. And my role really in that shooting was sort of serving as an air traffic controller for all the various editors and reporters we had working out of USA Today in Virginia and various other properties. We brought some reporters in from Arizona, uh, I think one from Louisville, a number from Texas, and we wanted to make sure that uh, uh, they weren't stumbling into each other, that uh, people who uh, knew what their assignments were, who their editors were, we knew what uh, uh, stories we needed to cover, and uh, in all we had. Uh, upwards of 160 people working on this story at uh, any given time, so it was a, it was really a, a very big operation.
0: Now, on that on that answer, let's go back to May 24th and the shooting at Robb Elementary in Uvalde. Uh, you're a news executive um, overseeing many newspapers, but specifically here the Austin American Statesman, uh, where you're basing the local coverage out of. What are the immediate key facts that a paper needs to deliver to the public in this situation. And how does that news coverage account for the sensitivity of the incident?
2: Yeah. So, you know, obviously one of the most immediate facts is is there's still danger to the public. And, you know, then we want to uh, start learning more about that. Uh, there's a number of uh, things that we want to, areas that we want to cover. We want to know about the shooter and what his motives were. Of course, one of our biggest things we want to look at it uh, are, are the victims and, you know, who they were and, uh, and try to remember them uh, properly. Um, then, you know, we also want to look at, you know, how this happened. You know, how did this shooter uh, get his weapons? Uh, why did he get his weapons? Were there was there something that uh, could have or should have prevented this? Were there warning signs that were missed? So, um, you know, I should say that, you know, I'm operating at this, you know, at a kind of a high level, like I said, as sort of an air traffic controller. So we have editors, including the Austin American Statesman's editor, Manny uh, Garcia, down on the ground, uh, uh, working on this uh, from there. So there's a number of facts that, uh, Uh, we want to handle and we want to be sensitive. I mean, one of the things we really want to do is not getting in any information wrong. And that's often what happens in the early stages of these mass shootings is there's such a crush of media from all over the country. Every television network, every uh, cable news network, uh, newspapers from, you know, from everywhere are there. And, uh, And in often cases, you get a huge international presence as well. And so you get a great deal of people falling into this small town all at once, and that creates uh, uh, all kinds of problems in itself. You have a, a number of uh, people who, you have a whole town who were grieving. Um, you have a lot of journalists who are trying to be sensitive, but their very presence there uh, can add to that uh, that suffocation of grief that's happening there. So. It's a really difficult situation. It's different. It's uh, unlike any other kind of major breaking news event where, like, you have a natural disaster or, you know, a hurricane or uh, a big wildfire where you might have a lot of journalists sweeping in, but there is a great deal of geography to cover. Uh, Here, you have a very small place, and so everybody is crushing in. And, you know, it can create real hostility uh, for people who were already uh, just in shock. Uh, in this case, you know, you had a police response and information flowing out that was very faulty from the beginning and uh, a story that kept changing along the way. And it was uh, really unlike any situation I'd ever seen in any mass shooting where the information was coming out so uh, uh, in, in such a stuttering and, and uh, incorrect way and eventually had to be you know, corrected. So in this case, in addition to all the grief and the victims and the, and the shooter, you had this whole strand of reporting on the police response and uh, what went wrong, what happened, uh, you know, why were police held back uh, for 79 minutes while this gunman was inside uh, still shooting? And while children were inside calling 911 desperately saying, you know, please send police and uh, describing their uh, their friends and teachers on the ground bleeding. And so not only did that uh, delay allow the gunman to continue his rampage longer, it also kept first responders from going in and helping victims who uh, might still have been alive. So... A number of issues, and that story's—you know—going to, you know, we're going to um, you know, uh, we're gonna cover that uh, story for a long time, uh, figuring out uh, just why so many things went wrong.
1: Ray, I want to draw on your experience as a reporter. You've covered a number of these mass casualty shootings in the past. Probably top of mind for you is the Sandy Hook shooting that happened almost 10 years ago in December 2012 in Newtown, Connecticut. You covered that shooting for the New York Times and the debates on gun control that ensued from that incident. So I just wonder if you see parallels between then and now and whether anything seems different about the rhetoric this time.
2: There are a lot of parallels uh, between that situation and this one. Uh, The types of guns used, uh, in that case, the the shooter uh, went in and killed a uh, a room full in fact two roomfuls of first graders 20 children in all who died and then six uh, six adults and that you know was the deadliest uh, uh, elementary school shooting a k-12 shooting still and in, in, that we know of in, in American history the Fuhrer was so strong after that uh, that you know there had been a number of big mass shootings before then uh, Virginia Tech Columbine and all had, not really led to any sort of significant gun legislation, but a lot of talk. Sandy Hook looked like it was going to be the uh, tipping point. The rhetoric was so strong coming out out of that. The emotions were so raw and continued to be raw that it appeared that you had a president at the time, Obama, who was uh, adamant that there would be change. Uh, you had a lot of legislators coming out adamant that there would be change, and in the end, nothing really happened. The you know NRA uh, got behind it, <laughs> it's you know hunkered down, and you know a lot of uh, uh, lawmakers who just uh, uh, voted not to change anything, or, or you know resisted any sort of change. So we're seeing a lot of this same kind of talk. Uh, coming up now. And, and then you had the same thing after the shooting at Marjorie Douglas High School in Parkland, Florida, where students came out and caused a nationwide walkout of schoolchildren demanding change. If anything was going to happen, this seemed like this was going to be it. And once again, nothing happened. And so we're seeing this fury now, but already we're getting indications that nothing is going to change significantly. Uh, there's talk, uh, you know, the conservative talk is, well, you know, we have to invest in mental health, and uh, I think everybody's in favor of that. Um, but you know, the question is, does that re- is that really going to uh, achieve what we wanted to achieve when there's so much access to uh, Incredibly destructive firepower, you know, high capacity magazines, uh, AR 15 style assault rifles that can j- just rip apart a body so quickly. And so already we're seeing a great deal of resistance to uh, beefing up red flag laws or uh, limiting uh, the age at which you could buy an AR 15. In this case, the gunman at uh, Rob Elementary bought his uh, guns a couple of days apart. We're seeing a lot of the same, and I suspect that we're going to see a lot of the the result in the end.
0: How do you report on these tragedies in a respectful way, especially in small tight knit communities like Newtown and Uvalde?
2: Yeah, Uvalde and Newtown were very similar in in that respect, in that they were small towns and they uh, the the. Uh, shootings were so shocking that uh, it attracted such huge, huge convergences of media. Uh, and within days, you had uh, uh, people who just didn't want to talk anymore, but there were still important stories to be told. And so, you know, how do you do that? And one of the things you do is you, you respect uh, the wishes of the, the families. If they don't want to talk, you don't bother them. But you, you still, you know, you do try to convey that there is power in their stories. There is power for change. There is power for action. If there is anything to come out of these, um, the, those stories have to be uh, have to be told. And so we really, you know, one thing we tell our reporters going into a place like Uvalde is to be uh, sensitive to that. To, to, that you know we are there to do good, not harm, and. Uh, you know, that, that's an important uh, philosophy to keep with you as you, you go into uh, situations like that.
1: So a week after Uvalde a shooting happens in Tulsa.
0: We are supposed to be the ones that are caring for others during tragedies like this. To think that our caregivers were the victims uh, is just incomprehensible to
1: me. I was there at St. Francis Hospital and at the nearby reunification center. One thing that I noticed was just how tightly controlled those two scenes were by law enforcement. And just as a reporter, I was struggling to think of ways to news gather outside of just what police say at a press conference, Uh, especially given what we observed in Uvalde. How do you go beyond just the police narrative and how important is it to go beyond the police narrative?
2: Well, as we saw in Uvalde, it's incredibly important to go beyond the police narrative. Their initial narrative was that Uh, They had acted, uh, that the police had acted heroically, and this was coming from uh, the Texas Governor Abbott uh, himself based on misinformation he received from uh, the incident commander at the time. That proved to be increasingly false along the way.
0: As everybody has learned, the information that I was given turned out in part to be inaccurate, and I'm absolutely livid about that.
2: The flow of information coming out of Tulsa was infinitely better and, uh, and as far as we know, uh, you know, much more accurate. But it is always important to, in all the reporting we do, is an accountability angle. So we do want to check the facts and, and make sure what we're getting from police is accurate. I think that... Um, these control access points for, you know, a reunification center for a fam- for families or uh, for the hospital itself. I, I think there's, uh, the, you know, some importance to that, you know. Um, it, you know, it, it may make it more difficult for us to do our jobs, but, um, but it may add to the, uh, you know, it helps, uh, I think, you know, if you have a bunch of reporters running around in a gymnasium or something where families are still waiting to learn if their loved one is alive or dead um, you know I think that is not uh, a great situation uh, to have either uh, as much as I always want open access for for journalists there's a lot of ways that we can go about and getting uh, the stories that we need to tell um, and uh, you know we have to be uh... uh sensitive or you know creative but always sensitive to to how we do that
1: one thing i i think maybe a lot of people out there might be thinking about is just coverage of the shooter, not just the victims. What factors are top of mind when it comes to covering that person? You know, what responsibilities does a media outlet have and what decisions need to be made in that coverage?
2: Yeah, so, you know, that's a that's a really difficult one because there's been, you know, a lot of over the uh, o- over time some debate that in covering the shooter and his motives were creating uh, a blueprint for copycats you know i think there are things that we can do and that we do do and that our our philosophy has shifted over time Uh, for instance we don't uh, use the shooter's name over and over and over we'll use it once or twice in a story maybe but then refer to that person as the gunman or the shooter Uh, we don't uh, uh we'll rarely run a photo the shooter. If you noticed, I don't think we ever ran a photo of uh, uh, the uh, Uvalde shooter. So we do what responsibly what we can to try to limit, uh, uh, you know, copycats and so forth. But in the end, our responsibility is to you know put together the pieces of what drove this shooter to do what this you know, what they did. Was it um, you know, uh, a mental health crisis? Were there signs that uh, his family or friends or authorities missed along the way? These are all important lessons for other people who might be looking at one of their loved ones who is in the midst of a crisis and is suddenly buying weapons or you know, uh, making social media posts that are uh, uh, potentially incendiary? I think we have to, as journalists, have some resolve that uh, it, it, it is in in the end our responsibility to provide this accountability uh, and, uh, you know, and, and tell these stories, you know, difficult as they may be. And they are difficult, uh, you know, not only for the people, you know, we're reporting on, but for journalists themselves. I mean, um, I, I still think about uh, the uh, – I, I wrote a story covering uh, the – about the – Officers who were the first in the rooms in in Newtown in Sandy Hook and how they found uh, a group of children, you know dead children in a corner, all bundled up with their teacher's arm uh, wrapped around them. and I think the term uh, the officer used was like a mother hand. and even thinking of that image, uh, you know it still brings tears to my eyes so it can be a very traumatizing uh thing to cover and uh you know it's uh it's incredibly sad that we have to keep doing this over and over and over
0: incidents like these attract a lot of public attention usually just for a few days sometimes longer but once the national news cycle moves on local reporters still have an important role don't they
2: yeah they absolutely do and you know um You know, like when I talk about Sandy Hook, um, I I don't think you could call me a local reporter because I was with the New York Times at the time, though. That was only maybe an hour or so or a little longer than that away. Um, But in that follow up are so many stories, important stories that don't come out or can't come out in that initial crush of coverage, you know, the town's uh, slow path to recovery the you know usually what happens is that uh, you know the media converges in. there's this big you know rush of information uh, the first funerals happen and then like you said you know the the television vans and everybody move on and that's really the time when some of the most important stories I think can be told the stories with the most nuance and uh, and And feeling and uh, and power, the story I told you about about the uh, uh, the police officers who were first on the scene, you know, gave the first description of what they saw inside that uh, and the you know the people in general, the first look at what was really seen inside that uh, those classrooms in Sandy Hook the you know i recall i did a story on you know whenever this happens in a small town like this they get flooded with sympathy cards in this case it was teddy bears from all over the world and you know to a you know the, the whole town is you know filled with these uh, memorials all well-meaning but you know at some point When do they go from being well meaning memorials to being reminders of the intense pain uh, for the people who have to drive by them every day after all the well wishers and the media and everybody have left? And when do you take those down and the decisions that go into taking those down? These are, you know, uh, what happens to the school? What, you know, what is the long lasting uh, trauma that? uh, and the, and the very slow path to recovery that this town is uh, going to go through, um, you know, these are uh, all, all still very, very important stories to do that you often can't do until that that media is gone. And, uh, uh, you know, people, you know, oftentimes there's a, a great reluctance to, to speak uh, to the media early on or, you know, and as that time go you know, time passes a little bit. They do want to tell their stories. There is a catharsis to telling telling what happened and sharing the stories of their uh, beautiful children. So, th- th- you know, th- that's I think an important role for uh, for local media, as well as the continuing investigation into what happened and why.
0: Well, Ray, thank you so much for joining us this week to talk about your own experiences covering mass shootings and leading newsrooms in Texas and Oklahoma. I want to thank our listeners also for joining us this week. This podcast is possible because of the Oklahoman subscribers. We encourage you to subscribe if you can. You can read these stories and more every day in the Oklahoman and at Oklahoman.com. Check back next Friday for a new episode.